1: Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss and you're listening to Our Wild World. Recently, we have gone to great lengths delving into our own iconic carnivores here in the U.S. and the various methods of management of our wildlife, the majority of which are biased in favor of hunters and sportsmen for game species, which puts many of our non-game and fur-bearing species, meaning our iconic carnivores, mountain lions, bobcats, lynx, wolves, coyotes, and bears, in the crosshairs of a system that considers them as varmints, pests, or a danger to human life and livelihoods, or simply as a commodity with little or no concern for their populations, their needs, and their value to ecosystems. We're also hearing more about mountain lion encounters by recreationists in suburban wild areas and in residential neighborhoods, causing quite a stir through both social and public media. To bring some clarity and understanding about mountain lions, my guest today is Phil Johnston, cougar biologist and a certified professional track and sign specialist, tracker four, by cyber tracker conservation of North America. Phil is the mountain lion biologist for the Hoopa Valley Tribe in Humboldt County, California, where he studies interspecific interactions between black bears, deer, and mountain lions. Phil will help us better understand how mountain lions use their landscapes, what their competition is, and in so doing, just how critically important both the science and the skills involved in tracking lions, interpreting the scene, and furthermore, the cascading consequences of pesticides, and rodenticides in the food chains of carnivores so without any further ado welcome phil hey ellie it's really great to have you on the program today we've been trying to coordinate this for a while
2: yeah, well, I'm glad to finally be on with you.
1: Well, me too, because this is a really important conversation we're having today. We've done a whole lot of preparation for our audience and our listeners around the world. And at this moment, I'd just like to say hello to our listeners in Mongolia. Um, I hope you're joining in, and thanks for tuning in. So we've done a lot of preparation, starting with John Laundrie and Dr. J. Teschendorf, and... Um, talking about cougars, the landscape, and um, our North American model of wildlife management and that so much of it is geared toward sportsmen, hunters, fishers, that our carnivores are sort of getting um, a bad rap, so to speak. So um, let's start with you telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to be specializing in cougars.
2: Well, I, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, kind of in a more urban setting, like a lot of folks do, you know, suburban life. And I was always drawn to the outdoors and would just go hike around as a kid. Um, I got kicked out of school pretty young cause I didn't fit in with the, <laughs> the whole educational system and spent a lot of time wandering the woods. And, uh, then I uh, ended up getting into tracking and started taking the tracker evaluations through CyberTracker, and I met uh, Dr. Mark Elbrock from Panthera through that, and uh, he kind of set me up volunteering on a lion project in uh, 2010, and I did that for a couple years and realized it might be fun to uh, study lions for a job, and uh, went back to school, finished my college degree, and. Uh, Started working full-time for the Hoopa Tribe, uh, tracking fishers, actually, while I was finishing my degree, and uh, then kind of convinced the Hoopa Tribe to start a lion project where we could examine some of these questions I've been interested in.
1: Well, what are some of those questions, or is that what we're going to cover today?
2: Yeah, I mean, w- w- there's a lot to go through, but uh, it's, yeah, it's we have be... we
1: have quite a lineup here, and it's all very interesting because we're looking at it from a whole different perspective. We're not looking at it from a wildlife management system. We're not looking at it so much from a a specific point of view from an ecologist or um, a hunter or um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife that kind of idea. We're we're looking at it from well, let's you know. Let, let's start with one of our questions, and then what I forget to ask you, be sure to just jump in and, and tell us, because our listeners are very interested in this topic. So let's begin with, you know, um, one of your points, the human perception of lions and the meteor portrayal.
2: Well, so Mount Lyons, uh they capture the public's imagination, one they're just a majestic looking creature, you know, and every time that I see one up close, I just kind of am in awe of how beautiful and, uh, just graceful of an animal that they are. And because of that, they're, they're iconic, you know, like you've said, they capture people's imagination and then there's the fear aspect of it, you know, um, When I was a youngster hiking around in the woods, oh, I was terrified of mountain lions, you know? I didn't know anything about them. I'd never seen one. But, you know, what you tend to hear uh, is about the attacks, you know, and then scenes in movies where some, you know, brave character is out trying to complete their mission, and then they get cornered by a mountain lion, you know, and it's a standoff. And so... I had that, you know, opinion of mountain lions at the beginning, just like most people do. Um, And that has been changed over time of interacting with them, spending a lot of time on foot, close quarters with wild lions, and getting to know them just like you get to know any other animal, and then it becomes uh, no longer threatening. But with the way that the media portrays mountain lions, you know, Anyone who has not had a chance to spend time with mountain lions and see that there's a way to interact with them, you know, that can almost always, you know, result in you being safe. Uh, you know, it's not—it's hard to get that perspective from just looking at the things that are shown in the media.
1: True, most of our interactions with mountain lions are going to be in some sort of confined space, uh, in in uh, a zoo or in a sanctuary or uh, in a veterinary-type situation, or some people have them as pets. Maybe we can get into that a little bit. And, um, that, and as you said, in movies, they're always evil. Wolves, bears, mountain lions, all of our carnivores are always portrayed as evil and mythical, and yet when we see them, we do have this magical, um, also somewhat mythical, ideology about them their spirits their power and all of that and in you know some ways people like to be able to consume that in terms of wildlife products so um you were one of the first people recently there was a headline cougar attacks jogger in fort collins and you were one of the first people to come back and respond to how the media portrayed that headline and uh actually went into some of the discussion of what that mountain lion was. It wasn't an adult. It was a cub. Tell us a little bit about how you rebutted that headline, because it was a great story or a great post, not a story. It was the truth.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that. And yeah, it, um, you know, I was, I took, a, you know, five days or so to respond to it, but I was getting a lot of texts from people, you know, saying, how did this guy strangle an 80-pound lion, <laughs> you know, which was what the original articles were saying. It was 80 pounds. And just, you know, from, you know, the last uh, eight or nine years of experience with lions, first off, you know, if somebody tells you they saw a lion, it's almost always a dog or a coyote or even a bear. Or uh, a house cat. Yep. Yes, indeed. And then, if it was actually a lion, the the actual weight of the animal is usually uh, overestimated by a two to three hundred percent. So <laughs> that's uh, the adrenaline says, kicking in. Right. If somebody says it was eighty pounds, it was probably thirty five pounds. Um, and that was the case in this uh, this situation with that jogger there. And, you know, I was only—I was motivated to write that article because, you know, I have friends on both sides of the spectrum. I work with people who are, you know, like animal rights type activists, and I work with people who are houndsmen, lion hunters, you know. And I feel like I'm in the middle of that world, and I respect both sides and kind of understand both sides. And I wanted to write something that was not uh, – going to alienate people on either side and explain a little bit of the facts of the situation, which is just that, you know, this mountain lion was a youngster, which I, you can almost always guess that because the attacks tend to happen from young animals that are in a dire situation because they don't have the guidance of their mother anymore. Um, and that, that was just my main point was to say, you know, Adult mountain lions are not out there waiting to attack people when they go jogging by. It's a desperate situation when a mountain lion attacks a human. Um, I'm not aware of any attacks that were uh, perpetrated by healthy adult mountain lions. Um, there may be some. And, I'm, I'm and just so not aware some of my reading
1: uh, and research uh, from Mountain Lion Foundation, who was also a guest – and from John Landry, cougar ecologist, that over the past hundred years, there's been twelve documented cases of a mountain lion attacking, and maybe three—I think it was—of killing a person.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's more than that. Um, on CDFW's website, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, they have a list of confirmed attacks confirmed meaning like there's either photographic or genetic evidence of the mountain lion there and you know fatal attacks do happen and it's almost always because of young lions that are orphaned or adults that are starving because they were injured in some way and i mean they attack but they are incredibly rare i mean incredibly rare and First off, you know, just to give people a little bit of background on lions, the one thing that I think people really don't understand about mountain lions is just how big of an area they roam. Um, a male lion in my study area can cover 220 square miles. And for anyone who has a hard time visualing that, I would encourage them to, you know, take a look at a place like their hometown, <clears throat> an area that they know well on Google Earth, And draw a polygon in there. It's really easy to do in Google Earth, and it'll tell you the square mileage of it. Draw a 200-square-mile polygon, and look just how big that area is. So a mountain lion roams over that entire area. There may be one or two other females overlapping there or another male. The chances of you being at the same place as that one lion and that 200 square miles at any given time is remote. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so well, that that brings me to an interesting question of mountain lions choosing to hang out or pass through uh, residential, human residential areas. Like here in Glenwood, uh, a few months ago, when the jogger thing was big in the news, uh, there were five mountain lions in Glenwood, which is about 45 miles from me in a neighborhood. One was a single um, they never said whether it was a male or a female and then one was a mother with three cubs and in this case our CPW Colorado Parks and Wildlife sort of emphasis on the parks um, chose to euthanize them all. So um, it seems and in Boulder just over the last couple of days there was a report of a mother and three cubs hanging out in a neighborhood of Boulder and they chose to just wait and see what was going to go on. So um why is it that mountain that we seem to be seeing more mountain lions where we are
2: well <clears throat> there's a lot of factors that can go into that but the one overarching factor that i feel comfortable saying is true all the time is the mountain lions are only coming down to where people are because there are prey there and that can mean um, you know, say it's in a desert environment or not great deer habitat, and then there's a human development where there's a lot of lawns and greenery and uh, manicured landscapes with good vegetation for deer to eat. I mean, a lot of human habitation has artificially high deer numbers, way higher than the surrounding natural landscape because of the human alteration of the... Uh, plant ecosystem in their area right Uh and that will pull mountain lions in and then another example where I work in Hoopa um, we have a lot of loose dogs like feral dogs that are just roaming around um, and the dogs breed and there's kind of just a ton of dogs running around in the valley uh, of Hoopa and that is a huge draw for young mountain lions and for mothers who are struggling to wean uh, their, you know, 10 to 16-month-old uh, kittens. So prey is what draws lions to human habitation. Lions do not come into human habitation for the uh, means of attacking people. That is just, nothing has shown that to be true ever. But they come into human habitation because there's there might be, you know, sheep out or goats, or uh, llamas, or whatever. Something is drawn on the line.
1: I know a lot of people, like, when we've been going through these droughts, keep up in the mountains, keep water out on their decks to, you know, provide for the birds and other animals, and mountain lions make use of that as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also importantly, that water is going to draw deer and other things that are prey for lions. You know, um, I see that even in, you know, totally healthy, wild landscapes where there's good deer populations. Uh, that's one of the things I like to talk about and study uh, in Hoopa is there are certain places where there's mineral licks, uh, where, you know, mineral rich deposits uh, come to the surface of the ground And these are rare minerals that deer don't get in their plant diet, so they congregate in huge numbers at these sites to literally eat the clay. And mountain lions really congregate at those areas, and then so do the bears, because the bears benefit from mountain lions uh, in terms of feeding off of their kills, ways we can talk about uh, later on.
1: Okay, so this is is fascinating. So basically, a quick sum of that is we have a tendency to draw the carnivores to us because we create a secure environment for them uh we we provide everything they need in terms of food and shelter and uh there they come and stay so uh does hazing work on lions in a community rather than you know the immediate response of euthanizing
2: well it's a complicated problem and and it depends and i'll say um there's a threshold. It's not just that we draw them to us, but there's a desperation threshold for a mountain lion. So in Hoopa, the mountain lions avoid the valley like the plague almost always. But then there's this desperation threshold when they're unable to get enough deer because either they're injured or they've they're an orphan kitten or they're a female who's struggling to support her four kittens, you know, or three kittens that are half-grown now. I mean, when a female has three uh, grown kittens, they can eat an entire deer in one day. So that female has to do a lot of hunting. And anyways, sometimes those kittens will become hungry enough, then they cross the threshold of desperation that makes them willing to you know, bypass their natural fear of humans and then take that risk of coming near human habitation. And wow. I've seen it time and time again, you know, where a lion that was extremely healthy Uh, living out in the wilderness, all of a sudden becomes sick, and then, boom, he's in backyards eating house cats, you know, or a female uh, leaves her kittens for a week just to go hunt, or maybe she's in the process of leaving them permanently, you know, and they have no idea how to hunt yet, and then they end up in backyards attacking dogs. And so that was a long-winded explanation. But to your question of does hazing work, it depends. I have seen it work and I've seen it not work. And it depends on where that lion is at in that desperation threshold. Oh. If it's if it's those kittens that are, you know, their mother is just left for a few days to take them, you know, go hunt deer or whatever. Um, you might be able to haze those kittens out of your yard and they'll be scared. They'll go back up there. They're not like really starving yet. They're just hungry. And then their mom can come back and pull them out of there. And this is something that I, I write about on my website um, is that sort of human conflict. And sometimes there's that sort of resolution to it where the female, the mother, will come back and get the kittens out of there. And it's a temporary thing. And now, what, and, on the other hand. Go ahead. Now, on the other hand, there's sometimes where it, say it's an older lion, like a nine or ten year old lion. I've had this happen, too, where maybe, you know, he could be poisoned. He could just be getting old. He could be really sick from just, I mean, they get cancer and other diseases just like humans do. He could be injured from, uh, you know, killing a deer. I mean, tackling those deer is serious, but anyways, the lion's injured and it's, it's a fatal injury basically. And this lion is on a downhill trajectory and the des he's so far down that desperation threshold that hazing won't work. I mean, I've I've had it where I've spent all day, you know, trying to haze lions out of neighborhoods, and uh, it doesn't happen. And that's more rare. And in that situation, you know, that is a desperate, actually, you know, suffering animal that it's going to die, you know. When when hazing is not working, uh, it's usually because that animal is so desperate. Um, and is and,
1: euthanasia usually the final course in that?
2: You know, I mean – I personally, in that situation, once other things have been tried and hazing has been tried, I think that that is uh, a merciful and humane way to go. Um, obviously, it's not anyone's first choice. you know, I, I, I love mountain lions. Um, and, you know, I, I don't like to see them killed, but to see one' suffering, you know, it's it's a similar thing to, you know, a human suffering from a terrible debilitating disease, you know. Um, some people like to choose, you know, assisted suicide or whatever they call it. And I think in some situations, for the benefit of human safety uh, and honestly for mercy for a, a suffering animal, the lion, uh, euthanasia can be the most humane way to take care of that situation. But that is completely different from just saying oh some people saw some lions in a park let's go kill them all
1: right wow we've we've covered quite a bit you know we need to step away for a little break and uh we have quite a bit to yet talk about because you've brought up a lot of questions in my mind so folks stick with us my guest phil johnston cougar biologist and tracker extraordinaire and we will be right back
0: W I L D I Z E dot O R G You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
1: And welcome back. This is Ellie and my guest, Phil Johnston, cougar biologist and tracker. So if you're just joining us, our first section talked a lot about uh, lions in the media, the lions that we're seeing more often in terms of human habitation and sort of that crossover between where people live in more wild neighborhoods and yet it's still urban and that it's still good mountain lion habitat and how to deal with that. But um, Phil is a uh, an experienced tracker um, and so his work involves tracking mountain lions. He works with the Hoopa tribe in Humboldt, California. So, Phil, let's talk about, uh, when, when people are talking about CPW and finding lions um, to deal with a problem animal or try and uh, put it back or relocate it into the wild, which is a subject we might be able to touch on, what is, let's talk about the importance of the skills in tracking and the skills of woodmanship for accurate tracking and research of finding lions, especially in terms of your projects.
2: Yeah, well, I think tracking is important for uh, all um, mammal research, basically, and uh, it's particularly important for lions because mountain lions cover Huge, huge areas, like I said. And in most situations, they're very thin on the landscape, you know. Densities of, you know, 1.2 to 4 lions per 100 square miles, you know, which is... So the odds of
1: seeing one is, is enormous.
2: I mean, it's, yeah. You, you can walk around in the woods for a lifetime, literally, and not see one uh, in most places. And um, so tracking, you know tracks is like the historic past of where that animal has been. And if you can find those tracks, you can learn a lot about where that animal goes, what patterns they take on the landscape, you know, uh, with mountain lions, they're sexually dimorphic. Uh, You can sex individuals uh, with experience, you know, uh, from the tracks. Uh, I'm very comfortable, you know, and other professional trackers and researchers have uh, demonstrated. I think Mark Elbrock did a, publish a paper on it where basically it's 99% accurate if you're an experienced tracker to sex mountain lions by their tracks.
1: All right. And you, you, you grabbed me on that one. How do you tell the difference?
2: Well, so sexually dimorphic mountain lions and uh, a lot of carnivore species, sexual dimorphism just means there's differences in the body size or body shape. And in this case, the mountain lions, males are just much bigger than females. So in my study area, males tend to be about 120 to 150 pounds, and females tend to be about 70 to 95 pounds. So, you know, that's a really quite a big difference in their body size, and that's uh, reflected in the tracks. And the way that we typically uh, talk about it is The hind pad, so the pad, the metatarsal pad of the hind foot on a mountain lion, if you measure it across at the widest point, uh, it'll be 50 millimeters or less if it's a female, usually about, you know, 46, 47. And if it's a male, it'll be greater than 50, usually 51 to 56 uh, for males. And what is that in
1: inches for us that can't convert quickly?
2: I do not know, rightly. <laughs> I would say about... <laughs> the, the size uh, of your hand? Um, no, it's, it's smaller than that. It's smaller than that. The hind pad, I would say maybe, you know, about two inches. If it's bigger, maybe about two inches. But I would encourage people to use millimeters for that because it's just uh, an easier way to do it. I carry a little tiny millimeter ruler with me. But, uh, you know, honestly, the difference is such that once you've measured it, a handful of times, you know, and I've gotten an eye and seen a bunch of different individuals, lions, tracks, Uh, you know, now at a glance, you know, I get a feeling if it's a male or a female almost immediately. There's some times where it's a, you know, a young male who's, uh, you know, maybe 100 pounds and hasn't grown into his full weight yet where it's, uh, you know, I'll say that I'm not positive if it's a male or a female and, you know, sometimes you don't know until you end up uh, getting the hands on the animal. But uh, most of the time, uh, you can tell pretty quick for an adult animal once you've had a little experience.
1: That's incredible. I would love to go on a walk with you through the woods sometime and just be able to s- read who all has been there? I do it a lot in Africa, um, but completely different animals, so therefore completely different tracks. So it would be a lot of fun. So we're going to get into it a little bit later that you do teach workshops in tracking and um, search so um, and woodsmanship. So um, this co- sort of goes back to our first section in terms of safety when you're out there. What should a person do, let's say, if they... St- they're hiking and they're recreating out there and they see a lion track or a lion and, um, what, what should they do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's an important question. And, uh, I get asked that a lot and there's definitely a lot of misconceptions about it. So, um, a mountain lion is a very, uh, intelligent and aware, uh, and perceptive animal and they are, A creature of stealth. So in my experience, uh, and this is based off of hundreds and hundreds of times of going into an active mountain lion kill site where I have a radio tracker so I can tell where the lion is, even if I can't see it. Um, So my impression from all that experience is that if a mountain lion thinks that you do not know where it is, so you can't see it, they are comfortable Basically, being close to you. But if you make it clear to them that you know where it is, where they are, they are then very uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because so they're, a, what would they're, they're resp- a creature that likes to be stealthy. Right. Their response, if, if you show them that you know where they are and yell and point, they will usually run away, um, you know, and so – Let's just assume for this conversation we're talking about healthy adult lions, not starving, desperate ones. If a mountain lion, you know, you want to make it known that you see it and that you know where it is. And they have a incredibly acute eyesight, so just looking at it, making yourself look big, um, yelling at it is the thing to do. You can throw rocks and stuff. I mean, mountain lions are an animal that you want to challenge. Uh, a black bear is something different because – Um, they are, they are bigger, you know, than humans. So if you challenge a black bear too much, it might, you know, feel threatened by that and attack. So that's not what you want to do with a black bear, but with a mountain lion, it's possible and, you know, usually very easy to scare them away basically. So, you know, they're not, they're not
1: known as the ghost cat, uh, for no reason. They prefer to stay away from humans unless of course all the pieces are in place as we discussed in the first section that right, we've drawn exactly. them to us. But out there in the wild where we seem to keep going further and further in terms of wanting more recreation, bikes, hikes, um, group picnics and ATVs, they know the lions know we're there.
2: Right. So as long yeah,
1: as and-
2: Go ahead. If, if I could just add one one thing to that, too. You know, as a responsible woodsman or just person who likes to recreate outdoors, um, I would encourage everyone just to carry uh, bear spray uh, because it works on mountain lions and bears. And, you know, even, you know, if a, a elk or something is calving, you know, and it's going to attack you. I mean, when we go out into the wild we have to acknowledge that there's a chance that we are going to inadvertently find ourselves in a situation of conflict with a wild animal. And then we have to be aware of the fact that that situation may result in that animal being killed or other animals that happen to be in the area being killed because, you know, say we interact with them improperly, you know? So for Good me, point. like, I carry bear spray, you know, cause I've had bears be aggressive as well, you know, and I've Never had to use it uh on a lion or a bear, but um it it's a helpful thing to carry with you because I know that I can prevent a situation where because I got attacked, this animal's going to then be hunted down and killed <laughs> you know right
1: right, and to prevent a situation that you don't have to get injured the recreator
2: we, right we of can course. take
1: um positive steps to be out in our wildness, which is a great place to interconnect inter- with nature, but we have to understand that it is nature, it is wild, and it bites. It's, so don't wear your headsets, don't wear earbuds, um, do make noise, talk, let the wild residents know that you're around, and I'd say a large percentage of the time, you won't have a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, our impact on the landscape is uh, big enough as it is, and these places of of wildness out there, you know, I think uh, we have a responsibility to be respectful and act in a responsible way when we're there, and, you know, like, just in the case of the jogger, um, you know, if he'd pepper sprayed that lion, uh, he wouldn't have needed to strangle it, (laughs) I yeah. promise you that. And, you know, I'm, I and can't for, say and, that and that even, would, lion wouldn't have then attacked someone else. And to maybe, take it back
1: it, a step further, to be prepared knowing that it is mountain lion habitat.
2: Right. I mean, yeah. I've
1: known for years there's mountain lions around Boulder and around Fort Collins. It's perfect habitat for them.
2: Yeah. But
1: even yeah. here. I mean, I've seen the tracks of one. I've I've only seen one wild lion, and unfortunately it had been hit by a car and was on the side of the road. The others I've seen are, have all been in sanctuary or zoo situations, which is a sad place to see them. So um, this kind of leads us to a point you mentioned earlier, houndsmen and uh, hunting and capture. So you use hounds, and what? talk to us a bit about that, because a lot of people don't understand that hounding houndsmen's using hounds is a good way to find lions because they're so elusive and um, get very upset thinking about the stress so let's spend just a little bit of time on what hound hounding hunting with hounding to track in terms of your case to get data and then of course the other side would be to kill it in a tree so um What effect does hounding have on a lion, and is it long-lasting? Is it a good effect that they'll learn to stay away from a pack of dogs, or I don't know?
2: Well, yeah, so it's a big topic, um, and there's lots of ways to do it, and I'll talk about it, you know, first from the research perspective, because that's what I'm most familiar with, and, you know, I'll just say, basically, there's two ways to catch mountain lions. One, you can bait and cage trap them, uh, with deer carcasses. So think of like a giant, you know, metal box, you know, with a wire, you know, that, uh, you put a deer carcass in and the mountain lion will go in it and, uh, trigger the trap. So that's one way. The other way is to use hound dogs. And I've done both ways and I prefer hounds. Um, one is, it's each i should say each method is differently effective in different areas so to use hounds effectively you need to have a big area where you can run the hounds so if you're trying to catch mountain lions in a semi-urban landscape where they may run through someone's yard you can't use hounds so right. that makes sense but um the hounds so yeah what what we do is I'll track a lion you know find tracks um Follow it until I get you know to a the, uh, where the trail is really fresh, you know, and that sometimes involves skipping many miles, many miles ahead, or tracking the same line for months on end. Um, and then you know when it's in a good place, basically I'll find a fresh track, meaning from last night, and we'll put the hounds on it where it has left the road because they can't smell the scent on the road, um, and then it'll they'll chase the lion sometimes they chase it a mile you know and so i shouldn't say they they're not chasing the lion they're following the scent and then once they actually get to that lion the chase usually then only lasts a hundred yards or so maybe you know four or five hundred yards because the lions they don't have a giant heart and lungs they're designed to run really fast for like 10 seconds at most and then they need to rest because they're not an endurance chase predator like a wolf or a cheetah or something. Uh, it's, It's much different. So cheetahs are much more adapted to run fast for a longer period, whereas lions can run really fast for just about 10 seconds, and then they run up a tree to seek refuge from the dogs. And so that chase, sometimes people think, oh, the poor lion is getting run for miles and miles and miles by the hounds. Um that's almost never the case. The the dogs may be following the tracks for miles and miles, but the actual chase of the lion usually only lasts, you know, few hundred yards because they're just not physiologically designed to run for that long.
1: So do, and then so one question, so with that physiological makeup, do they end up I mean I know you're familiar with capture myopathy? And just for a definition, it's the stress and the adrenaline that goes through the muscles of an animal when it's freaked out and adrenaline is really high and sometimes uh, it can kill them. So does this hound chase or, and running up the tree end up putting a lot of stress on the lion or once it's in the tree, is it able to like calm down and assess the situation? And do you wait?
2: It's definitely the latter. Um, and so think about it. You know, lions evolved with wolves. Um, and in the history of mountain lion evolution on this continent, I mean, wolves were far from the scariest thing lions had to contend with. You know, our, our mountain lions, pumas, cougars, whatever you want to call them, they evolved with dire wolves, short-faced bears, saber-toothed cats, a whole slew of much bigger, larger, more dominant predators on the landscape than them. So, a mountain lion getting chased up a tree by a couple of dogs. I mean, while I'm not trying to say that it's nothing, I don't want to minimize the the stressful effect that that does have. It's by far the worst thing that that that's going to happen to that lion in its lifetime or even in that month, you know. Okay, you mean um, the,
1: the least worst thing that's going to happen to it.
2: Yeah, it's by far the least yeah, maybe I misspoke on that. Yeah, it is not at all. A huge stressor in terms of the lion's actual lifetime. So then, and I can see evidence in that where the lion, oftentimes, they'll actually just go to sleep in the tree, you know, and very relaxed. And different lions handle it differently. You know, big, confident toms, by Tom, I mean a male lion, tend to just go right to sleep in the tree. Uh, Females, you know, may stand up in the tree and be a little more nervous or jump out, but. The thing is, they're interacting with the dogs, and the dogs and Puma relationship, I mean, they just see them as wolves, I think. And that's why, you know, you can tree a lion with like a a miniature poodle, (laughs) because they just see it as a wolf. Um, So basically, they're
1: running up a tree, they just don't want to interact.
2: Exactly. Okay. so that in and of itself is not a very stressful part to the lion. And so then, if if I may, let me just describe the capture process with hounds. Yeah. Um, and so then once the lion is treed, uh, the, it'll stay there, and we can tell from the sound of the hounds that they're treed, the way that they're barking. I get my pack together, hike in with you know one or two other people uh, carrying capture kit to be... Um, with all the things we know we need to keep the lion safe once it's uh, sedated. And we'll go in, I'll assess the situation as soon as we get to the tree. I try to see the lion before it can see us so that to minimize the amount of time that it's aware of people at the tree because that's the most stressful time for the lion when it's seeing that there are people there because then it goes from being, you know, just dogs to being, okay, now there's this other unfamiliar, intimidating predator in the situation, humans. So I'll try to assess the situation from a distance, see if it's a safe tree to dart the mountain lion in. And this is the whole thing about hounding. This is where the decisions that the, the researchers make make hounding either really safe or really dangerous if the mountain lion is sitting in a giant tree hanging over a cliff and there's a raging river below that, you can't dart it, right? Right. Because if you dart it, it might fall asleep, fall off the tree, fall down the cliff, into the river, or whatever. And in the past, you know, people have made mistakes uh, and that have lions have died on, on hound captures. None that I've been on, uh, but this has happened in the history of research and that's why hounding has had somewhat of a bad reputation. But again... You don't have to dart the lion. You can always let it go. So for me, I'm extremely picky. Um, And if if the tree is not completely safe, if it's too high up the tree, if there's a creek within, you know, 500 yards, I'm just not going to dart the cat, you know. If there's any chance that something could go wrong, um, we'll just let it go, you know, because we can always try to capture it again, you know, but – you can only make that bad decision that may end up in killing that lion once. And, you know, I would not be able to forgive myself if I did that. So I'm really careful to, you know, only proceed when the situation is safe. So then I'll go in. If it's a safe situation, then the lion sees me. There may be, uh, you know, a minute or two while I'm uh, getting ready. And then I dart the cat. It goes to sleep within about a, uh, you know, one to three minutes and then i'm climbing up the tree meanwhile get to it while it's still you know in the tree i use uh, only a certain type of drug that causes the lion to cling to the tree still they become handleable but they don't lose complete uh dexterity so that they don't fall out of the tree okay probably. right and you know again i would never dart a lion if it's 80 feet up a tree and above rocks or something. I Try to do it in a really safe situation so you're not just counting on the drugs. You're going to have multiple safety nets, basically. Uh, climb up the tree, get to the lion, harness it, and lower it down. And by that time, the lion is asleep, you know, so it, it's not really aware of what's going on. And at that point, you know, the lion, we process it, we put a collar on it, take whatever samples we need, Uh, make sure that we get some antibiotic on the, the little injection point from the dart. And then we back off from the lion a little bit and watch it and wait for it to wake up and make sure it's doing good and watch it walk off. And I, the worst wound that I've ever had on a lion from this capture method is the dart wound, which is literally, you know, it's like you pricked yourself with a knife. It's a very insignificant wound. Uh, Overall, And we cover it with antibiotic. So, you know, I haven't had any lions get any big lacerations or break any bones or anything like that. So, I mean, it's a very safe capture method when you make uh, very prudent choices. So, you know, the only time the hounding goes wrong is when researchers dart lions in situations that they shouldn't. Well,
1: Thank you for covering that in such detail because I think it's critically important for listeners to understand that we do need to get data on mountain lions and that there are people like you that are doing it and that it's ethical and that a lot of the conversation in vitriol about how research is done on them is done in an effective and humane way. So at this moment, we need to step away uh, for for a break. We have some more uh, very information to cover. So stick with us and we'll be right back.
0: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet she does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity it is irreplaceable Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot
1: And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest Phil Johnston, cougar biologist and tracker for uh, mountain lions in Humboldt, California with the Hoopa Indians. So if you've uh, been listening to the first uh, portion of this program, we have learned a lot of information about mountain lions and their habitat and there's a really critical part that we need yet to discuss and that is the trophic cascade effects on ecosystems of vegetation and release and rodenticides in the landscape that are coming from our uh, agricultural processes. So, um, Phil, why don't we start with um, sort of the, I think where we need to go is the competition between black bears and other animals with the mountain lions, and then how that cascades out... Through the the landscape,
2: yeah, and that's really the center of my research uh, in Hoopa is looking at the interactions between black bears and mountain lions and deer. So in Hoopa, we have the highest density of black bears recorded on Earth, and that's about four per square mile. Which, if you remember before, I said you know the highest densities of lions in the West tends to be about four per hundred square miles. So for every one lion on the landscape, there's a hundred bears in this environment at wow. least, which is dramatic. And so a lot of people don't realize this, but black bears are dominant to mountain lions almost always because they're larger. Uh, an average mountain lion, male, like I said, 130 pounds. Average female, 80 pounds. Uh, average female black bear, 200 pounds, they can be easily 300, uh, and males can be, you know, easily four, up to 500 pounds here. So they are just a bigger, more forbiddable, more formidable, uh, formidable animal. And, uh, the black bears will displace mountain lions from their deer kills. So when a mountain lion kills a deer, a black bear will then locate that kill by scent, basically. Black bears have the most exquisitely sensitive noses uh, of, you know, well, one of the most exquisitely sensitive noses on the planet. They're yeah. incredibly good at finding kills. And they'll find those kills by either just walking into the wind uh, or even scent tracking the mountain lion to kills because they know that the mountain lion's going to kill eventually. And, anyways, once they do that, they'll displace the lion from its kill. And so my collared lions in Hoopa, they get displaced from 98% of their kills in the months between April and November. Wow. Yeah. So, and oftentimes it happens within uh, 24 hours. So typically a mountain lion will feed on an adult deer for about five, six days. And that time is getting cut by, you know, 80 90 percent because black bears are pushing them off of their kills so what do the lions do they have to go kill again right and i've had some cases where a mountain lion literally killed a deer and before it had any time at all to feed on it you know like a black bear just happened to be in earshot basically and came in and chased the lion off and claimed the deer for itself Um, and so this has the effect on the mountain lions that they have to Kill another deer instead of continuing to feed on that one. So you can almost think of it as the mountain lions are in effect just feeding the deer to the black bears because the bears keep chasing them from one kill uh, on to the next.
1: So you can sort of I can sort of see a whole cascade of consequences just because of that. They have to kill more. Um, right. It's more stress on their bodies, and then. Um, Another critical aspect that plays into this is what they're eating can be toxic.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. So if if you think about this, you know, a mountain lion has to kill once a week in normal conditions, and then it has to kill once a day or once every two or three days with the black bears. They're sampling more of the prey on the environment. And if you say, you know, 5% of the prey on the environment are, you know, exposed to some sort of toxin, the mountain lions are increasing their sample rate are therefore more likely to accumulate more of those toxins potentially more quickly. So, that makes sense?
1: One, yeah, it makes absolute sense. So one quick question. Um, so mountain lions, let's say in the case of chronic wasting disease, mountain lions recognize uh, the symptoms of chronic wasting disease sooner than people do in deer herds. So they do go after the weaker deer. Is that the same case in terms of toxins building up in prey species that the lions will go after those deer and then talk a little bit more about how toxins build up in the carnivores.
2: Well, so um, we don't have enough evidence yet to show, one, that the mountain lions can target um, weakened deer because it's really tough to – just get the data on those deer. And we don't have that much evidence showing that deer are accumulating rodenticides as quickly as many other animals are. But, um, you know, just to talk about, um, how rodenticides accumulate, you know, um, let's say, and the main problem of this in my study area, since it's largely a wilderness area, uh, is actually trespass marijuana cultivation where there's illegal. uh, You know, cover, you know, on public land, pot farms, basically, oftentimes operated by uh, cartels or other drug syndicates where they're growing marijuana and they use a bunch of nasty, you know, chemicals that are even illegal in the United States to um, prevent their crops from getting disturbed by bears and rats and other things. So uh, Fisher will go in, say, and eat, uh, well, let's say a rodent eats that rodenticide. And the way that those rodenticides act is they take a couple days to kill that rodent. So by the time that that rodent is actually dead from the first dose, it can have actually gone back and consumed like 20 more doses. So it can have on board its system, you know, many times a lethal dose by the time it actually dies. And then a fisher comes in and, you know, all the prey in this one little area are really slow and easy to catch, you know, because they're half poisoned. You can imagine that a meso carnivore like a bobcat or a fisher would be inclined to stay in that area and predate on those animals that are half poisoned. Um, and then a mountain lion moving through the area may then find that fisher, which is now showing some effects of the poison, and feed on that. So. This is somewhat of a hypothetical chain, but we do have some evidence to show this is happening. Like I've had a radio collared fisher that we found dead in a weed grow that had basically been having a seizure from poison that it ingested at the weed grow. uh, And when it was then pounced on by a family group of mountain lions, so a mother with kittens, you know, probably just the mother pounced on it. And killed it. anyways, those animals ate that fisher. And I didn't have collars on these lions. We were just, uh, I was tracking them on foot. And I had a radio collar on the fisher. And then anyways, I continued to track those lions on foot. And within two months, all of those lions were dead. uh, From basically, they started exhibiting signs of poisoning. One of them I found shot. Uh, Another one had to be euthanized because it was so sick. Uh, and then the mother was stumbling around and kept being seen and then ended up disappearing. So all of those lions died uh, from, you know, poisoning. We tested the carcass of the one that we were able to recover and it was – it had several poisons in it. So, you know, so this toxins, is anecdotal evidence, but
1: there – There is other research um out there that is not – so anecdotal um, in other areas that uh, we'll be covering further in um, upcoming episodes so the key here to understand is when we either in our neighborhoods of you know human habitation or um, in our gardens we use these rodenticides and pesticides they have severe ramifications and cascading effects on everything that feeds on it from the pollinators to the rodents and as Phil just said it builds up in the rodents without killing them to a certain point until they die so they've already got mega more percentage of these toxins in their body than they're eaten by the carnivore and then the carnivore will eat several because they tend to stay in the area where their prey is easy to catch because they've been affected by poisons and then these toxins build up in the carnivore to a point that it kills them
2: Uh, absolutely or at least has detrimental effects you know and makes them more susceptible to you know poaching or makes it harder for them to hunt or it could be you know this is the sort of thing that creates a human mountain lion conflict situation where this lion is now so desperate for food that it crosses that desperation fear threshold and is now willing to end up in your backyard trying to eat your dog or whatever. Wow. This is scary.
1: So, I mean, it's a a huge lesson, um, point of uh, fact for listeners to understand why using pesticides and rodenticides, even in your home, is um, not a good idea to find other alternatives that aren't such uh, ecosystem killers. Um, Yeah,
2: it's an absolute travesty. I mean, it's... We're going to look back on the use of anticoagulant rodenticides and these other poisons in the very near future and just think, oh, my God, you know, how, how did we let this happen? Because if you, when you put out that beta tomcat or whatever, the poisons, if it doesn't end up in wildlife, I mean, that's a miracle. It it almost always does because you're going to have these animals going out in your yard and a hawk is going to eat them or a gopher snake or an owl or a cat, you know, I mean – you're putting your own pets at risk too. I mean, it's, it's just, it's an extremely pernicious uh, chemical and I can't believe that we're still putting it on the way, on the landscape and how widespread it is, is just shocking. I mean, every university, every gym, every, you know, business school that has a rodent problem, that's the first thing they do is just poisons.
1: Wow. That's a, that's a yeah. scary thought. And it un- is. unfortunately we're out of time today, but, um, We've got a minute. What is your website, Phil?
2: My website is uh, www.earthatfirstsite.com. Like love at first sight, but earth at first sight. And uh, there I've got a bunch of blogs and videos and pictures of lions. uh, And I cover a lot of these topics we talked about uh, more in depth. And you can also go there to uh, look into tracking workshops that are coming up and uh, contact me to find out about that stuff.
1: Well, that that's great. So listeners, definitely look at yeah. dot .com or dot .org?
2: Dot .com. Dot com. Dot .com.
1: Learn more about Phil, his work. Join up for a workshop if you're out there in California. I certainly would like to. And hopefully, Phil, we can have you back and we can talk about some more effects that we just didn't have time to get into of what's um, affecting our mountain lion populations. So, meantime, it was fabulous talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed it.
1: You're welcome. So it great conversation. We got into a lot of information we hadn't been able to get into before. So folks, um, I hope you enjoyed our program today and be sure to tune into your Wild World and your effect on it, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Phil.
2: Thank you, Allie.